Hi friends, I'm Christine Dynese, Integrative Epigenetic Health Specialist and host of the Well-Examined podcast. Well-Examined is where science and discovery meet human intuition and wellness to help everyone claim sovereignty over their health and vitality. Each episode, I'll chat with the most clever minds in integrative health, biohacking, and neurolinguistics, as well as reputable citizen scientists across all facets of wellness. As the world begins to take their health into their own hands, never before have we so badly wanted second, third, and fourth opinions. Well-Examined serves to offer alternative treatments, ancient traditions, and the latest medical research with a measured dose of objectivity, levity, and a fun bedside manner. Hi, friends. Today, we're joined by longtime friends, Lucia Pinizzati and James Cervelloni the founders and partners of Mindopoly's Center for Change in Rochester, New York. Together, the two created and practiced what they branded as change work in the personal and professional space of human development. Their unique system encompasses facets of neurolinguistic programming, timeline therapy, Ericksonian hypnosis, symbolic meaning, metaphors and movement, integral eye movement therapy, core transformations, Kiersey temperament testing, and personal professional coaching. With over 40 years of combined experience in human and corporate development, I think Lucia and Jim are the perfect people to share their perspective on beliefs, manifestation processes, and how we can change our thinking if we want to. I've been referring my clients to them forever and now have worked with them myself. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us, Christine. We're very excited um, to have the opportunity to share what it is that we do with others. That's awesome. So I've known Jim and Lucia for a really long time. I've known Jim since I was five. And in knowing Jim, I am lucky enough to get to know Lucia. So we've been friends and definitely collaborators over the years. And I even have had an opportunity in my professional and personal life to work with them. So I really wanted to bring them today. They have a really unique and cool perspective of looking at life, the world, and as they say, finding our peace in the puzzle. So let's jump right in. For those of you who are new today, uh, I love to begin by asking, what's your Aikigai? So Aikigai is our purpose in life. According to Japanese culture, it encompasses professional, personal. It can even explore family connections. So let me ask you guys that. What's your Aikigai? Do you want to take this one first, Jim? Um, I think by nature, Luchi and I... Uh, have always been driven towards service to others. And looking back over the years, even not knowing it, everything that I've done in my professional, even per personal life has been in some way trying to help others. Um, when I met Lucia and found that we had a lot in common and that this work was an opportunity to bring everything all the experience both of us has, have had throughout our lives into a model that could address great change over many concepts or over many contexts with people. We found that this was just the perfect vehicle for that. Mm -hmm. I would tend to agree um, from the standpoint of that when I was as young as I was, I think I was always trying to figure out a way to make changes in my own life, the transformational piece of things um, in my own life seem to translate over into a desire uh, 
through making those changes in my own life to sharing how to make change because I think most people may already have identified things that they'd like to shift or change in their uh, in their lives. Um, however, when you don't know how, you, I call it getting stuck at go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. So you end up kind of like, you know where you want to go, you just know how to get there. And uh, through the years, Jim and I have both identified a lot of the myths around change that keep people kind of in this ever-ending loop of you know, I call it like getting on the merry-go-round and trying to catch the horse in front of you. You know, you feel like you're moving, but you arrive where you began, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me just because I've been working with you guys and have studied this along the way. And this is where the current conversation comes into, uh, you know, neurolinguistics and change work. And people are all talking about things at the belief level and what that really means. So, we commonly refer to, um, you know, this new manifestation process. It all seems to come down to, well, successful manifestation rests on transforming beliefs and what we're assigning value to. Would you, you know, agree with that? What's your own, you know, personal take on that, personal slant on that, personal well, and professional? It might be useful first to define beliefs so that everyone's on the same page because the word is used every day, many times, my beliefs, but few people actually understand what a belief is. Most people, I think, would consider it, when you hear beliefs, oh, religious or spiritual. Yeah, but simply put, our definition, just so that everybody gets this uh, very basically, is uh, a belief is information recorded on your neurology, let's say the brain, in such a way that it becomes your statement of reality. In other words, your reality database, what you think or feel is true. And the interesting thing about beliefs is they structure your reality. They force you to see the world and yourself according to the nature of the belief. And so Liu Qi and I have come up with a statement that we have found to be very true. Um, each of us lives life according to what we believe to be true about ourselves and about the world, even if what we believe to be true isn't. Uh -huh. And if I could <laughs> kind of interject a little something here, <clears throat> as a challenge to my clients, um, you know, very often people will come in with that, because we have a think-feel relationship with ideas, yes, and most of us don't realize that we're giving our truth to something versus taking our truth from something. And so a lot of times, what ends up happening is from a neurological perspective, we think something, it feels as though it's true. And so it seems to re, um, it's sort of is recursive in a sense. It seems to validate itself. So that think feel loop is very difficult for people sometimes to just even break free of because they'll, they'll often state, well, it, it seems true. It feels true. Right. So one way of thinking about things is not really we can never look at the truth of something from the standpoint that truth is inherent in anything. We give truth to things and it's always relative. So what I mean by that is uh, relative, even the things that we take as a fact. So, for instance, we go to school, we learn the sun rises in the east and sets in the west and everybody knows that's a fact. But from the position of, um, you know, 
the, the, the earth turning on its axis, the sun isn't going anywhere. We're yeah. moving and the sun mm -hmm. is fixed. And from the position mm -hmm. of, okay, you're at, in the middle of outer space, where's east and west and north and south? So that's what I mean by relative. So sometimes it's more productive to really look at the consequence of giving your truth to something and saying, what am I creating in my life when I give my truth to this? I think that's a really awesome, important distinction to make. So that leads me right into, you guys talk about the world's deadliest belief. Oh, okay. Yes. So break that down for people, because I think that'll really drive home what you're saying. I think that'll help resonate. Uh, the world's deadliest belief is a term that we coined because after many years of interviewing clients and doing significant change work, not only with ourselves, which is interesting because it's uh, where we, we are the proving ground of belief change. When we know uh, for a fact that it works for us, we know for a fact that it'll work for someone else because all human beings are designed the same way. The world's deadliest belief we found is the core belief that is responsible for all the psychological suffering that we can think of in the world today. In every conflict. In every conflict. And it's simply this. Other people and events are responsible for how I feel and how I behave. Now, someone says, okay, what's so deadly about that? But what <laughs> they don't realize, because it is so unconscious, by the way, that's what beliefs are. They are unconscious. You can see and feel, you, you can observe the effects of your own beliefs. You can feel it internally, the conflicts, the suffering, even the happiness, without knowing what the belief is. And it's important to understand that the belief drives all our behaviors. Our thoughts, our feelings, and behaviors are driven by beliefs. This is important to know because the world's deadliest belief says that what's going on on the outside is what's causing me to feel and behave the way that I do. And there's one fundamental understanding I think that's important here. We have found that all human beings want the same thing. We call it Essential okayness. The essen essential being essentially okay. Essentially okay. The essential human needs. Everyone is motivated and driven by this, and yet, as important as it is to have that okayness, most people don't know what it is. So they say it's these outside things. You know, if we say, what's it take for you to be, what do you want most? One of our, our, our most important questions that we ask a, a newcomer <laughs> is this. Now check this out. What do you want most in life? So much so that if you had it right now, you would do whatever you had to to keep it. Mostly when we ask that question, we'll get, well, I want a relationship, a good career. I want, you know, all these things. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, right? Mm -hmm. But that's the superficial um, uh, answer. Underneath in what we call the deep structure, we ask, okay, what would having those things get you that you want even more? that you don't think you could have without it. Eventually, we dig down to things that are more abstract, that are on the list. Connection, love, happiness, peace, purpose, those things. That's what drives everything we do and what we refrain from doing, trying to keep or get more of that. However, this belief makes us think that that comes from the outside. 
People don't understand that we are in charge of our own state of being. It's already hardwired in. Okay, so this makes total sense. I wanted to ask you guys, I was going to make a joke, you know, everybody's either pissed or offended right now. I mean, I'm sure people have been pissed and offended for all of human existence, but I think, I don't know, maybe it's social media, I don't know. So go on to say, you know, when we're presented with an idea that challenges us at the belief level, and we have this choice to make, you know, how can we become more aware of our ability to choose um, maybe it would be helpful if we back it up, but just a, a touch, you know, yeah, to, go to put some foundation down because beliefs are based on meanings that we've ascribed, uh, to events that have occurred in the past, our childhood, for instance, we make up a meaning when we're children about what something might mean for us or about us. And, uh, it happens organically because uh, a baby's brain is wired, programmed to receive information. In, in fact, we're in a hypnagogic state. We're like little sponges. And we're only trying to answer pretty much two questions uh, in terms of our navigating our way in the world. We're trying to understand our way, who we are. Are we safe? And what does this mean about me and my world? So we're learning about the world experientially, and we don't have a prefrontal cortex that allows us to think critically. So we're trying to interpret our body sensations in any moment. So for instance, you know, imagine you're a little girl and you're drawing a picture for me and I'm mommy in the kitchen, right? And, you know, for half an hour, you spent on this little masterpiece and you're all excited. And all the time you're thinking, oh, mommy's going to love this, you know, and just with love in your heart, you know, you pick up your picture. It's full of glitter and glue and stickers and run into the kitchen. Mommy, mommy, look what I drew. Go inside. Why are you always underfoot? Can't you see I'm on the phone? In that moment, what what's happening? You know, immediately there's a wham right oh yeah and there's a i don't feel good and without enough information you know coming from the from an ex from an adult you're likely to interpret that to mean something about you so in that moment i when i ask clients this question very often i get things i'm not important i'm a nuisance um i made mom mad right what i did wasn't good enough she doesn't like it um, because it's still wired into their neurology. Yeah. And it's the genesis of a belief. It's the beginning of a belief. So one of the things is that beliefs are based on interpretations that we made in the past when we didn't have the faculties that we have as adults. And we use those to navigate our ways through life. But the, the wild thing is, is that these meanings are no more true than other meanings we could have made if only we knew to make them. So here's what I mean by that. Imagine you're that same little girl coming in and you're not changing, but I'm an adult that realizes that you're navigating the world trying to understand with your child's brain in my adult world. So rather than, you know, uh, think that you should know better because what <laughs> child knows better? I mean, one of the things is yeah. I always tell parents, I say, when your kid does something, Right. Instead of saying you should have known better, say, I bet you didn't know that should happen. I, oh, di yeah. I bet you didn't know that was going to happen because children don't have the experience you have. But we have a tendency to project our own experience onto the people around us. Right. Even the little ones. 
So imagine though I was had the faculty or the presence of mind as mom to say, hey, hang on a minute, right? And it's like, oh, you know, honey, Christine, you know, what you have to show me is really important. Um, but, you know, obviously I'm on the phone right now and I can't give you my full attention. Please go inside. I'll find you as soon as I'm off the phone. See, I learned this through you guys. This is what I right. try to do every day in my home parenting right. life. Right. So it's sort of a, uh, I'm, I'm doing an information download because as Jim said, if, if a belief is nothing more than information that's encoded on the brain in such a way that it becomes a statement about reality, the only thing that could overwrite it is more information. I love that. So, okay, because you guys know I love neuroscience. Have they done um, MRI studies or, uh, you know, like comparing meditation to the brainwave states of children who are in the environments of parents who are reframing and patient and presenting it like if, that? If there like, was a research show, basically. Yeah. Um, actually, I, I, I don't know. Um, so I'm, I'm not qualified to answer that statement from that perspective. However, from the perspective of working with clients every day. Yeah, that's is valuable. Because, yeah, it, it, yeah, to me, it's more valuable. Primary data because, is more important. Yeah, yeah, to me, it's more valuable because it now isn't in the uh, theoretical realm of something. It becomes in the practical realm. And the, the actuality of uh, helping clients to reevaluate their, their original perceptions and, and bring more information to those simply it shifts it changes and it expands people's ability to bring to, to uh, we what we say is like um the world is not as as it is it's as you are yeah yeah and mm -hmm. so rather and helping clients to understand that we bring meaning to things we don't take meaning from things just as in the beginning that if i'm the one that made this meaning up then i can shift the meaning and it's a very empowered position to take in life Okay, so let's keep talking about how generational trauma is passed along. I think people are kind of, you know, getting some of the ingredients of that, what we were just talking about. A lot of people who are coming into my practice, they, you know, oh, I feel this way, I feel that way, I have this health concern, I want to, you know, feel better. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you go down the road, well, what does feeling better mean to you, et cetera, et cetera. And some people just want to talk about it in the context of, I have this illness. You know, they're just looking at it's rheumatoid arthritis, it's fibromyalgia, it's cardiac, you know, issue. But I know I've noticed that over the years when I was just giving people, uh, here's your nutraceuticals, here's your food therapy, um, you know, go to yoga, meditate. It was still way too static and I wasn't asking the right questions. So I started asking things at, you know, the belief level using a lot of the techniques that I've learned from the two of you and, you know, this idea of generational trauma being passed along where let's say the little girl you're talking about, you know, she never had the opportunity to have it reframed for her. And so mm -hmm. she just carried that along and, you know, little Christine never got to grow that up, if you will. So now we have an adult with all of these, you know, inner child issues so I see this come out in um, deferred responsibility, subconscious self-victimization, uh, you know, and it manifests in these chronic states of illness. From, you know, from my perspective, I like to think the heart and the mind inform the rest of the bodies, you know, homeostasis. So how, 
how can, I don't know if I want to ask, how can we make ourselves more aware of that? How can we stop the cycle of these generational traumas? You know, if you're unaware of it, my mom always says, oh, don't step into somebody else's karma. They have to figure it out on their own. But I just want to ask those questions to, you know, to people. So maybe this is more of advice to healthcare workers. Maybe we could put it in that context and people can kind of extrapolate from it. So say you're giving me advice on how to talk to my clients about this, assigning value to things, trying to understand um, trauma, childhood trauma. Yeah. I know uh, that's all loaded and a lot to unpack there. Yeah, it's a big question, but um, first understanding the nature of a belief and understanding that they structure your reality. Then knowing that a belief can be changed. Um, when we go back to the world's deadliest belief, because you mentioned the victim mind again, that is the foundation of the victim mind. The victim-bully relationship, the victim-oppressor relationship comes from the belief that other people are responsible for how I feel and therefore how I behave. The flip side of that is, and I'm responsible for how other people feel and how they behave, what I do and what I say. Now, this excludes a physical attack. This has got nothing to do with that. This is all the psychology. Mm -hmm. okay. So understand first that this, what you call the, the generational trauma is, is a group of beliefs, someone's reality being passed down through the generations like a bad recipe. Yeah. That's because a you've got seven and a half billion people in this world and seven and a half billion different realities in this one world. No two realities line up. And so mom and dad don't know any better unless they've been educated. Otherwise, they're trying to hand their reality, hand feed their reality. And a lot of that is unconscious. It's through observation uh, for, by the child. They pick that up and the brain learns because it's number one um, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, anyway, is survival. Survival, number one goal. Yeah, it's number one goal. It is met, it is evolved. The brain is wired for survival. That's why it picks up this information. How do what? How how must I behave to please my caretakers and therefore survive? Because displeasing my caretakers means death. <laughs> and in some societies, that means physical. Yeah, in this society, true. at least, it means psychological. But it's the psychological self that the individual is trying to preserve now. So going back to understanding that it is all meanings are made up. People will die, fight to the death. They will kill other people to defend a reality that is made up. Yeah, it's crazy. And we get pushback on this. And that can be pretty shocking for somebody to hear this because if it feels true and looks true, it must be true. But what they don't understand is that all meanings are made up. Here's a litmus test. Take anything that you believe to be true, anything at all. If it cannot be proven in a CSI lab and agreed on scientifically across the globe, <laughs> it's made up. It's make-believe. And the thing is that makes this belief so deadly is that language uh, forms a great part of reality. It helps structure reality. Oh, yeah, for sure. You'd think it's the other way around, but it isn't. And so this belief has become so unconscious that it's in the language. And it's like this, victim language, world deadliest belief language sounds like this. You make me feel X. 
Oh, I go through that with my patients all the time. I find <laughs> that me. word, that object, offensive. That offends me. Does that sound empowered or like victim? Yeah, yeah. And so what happened is this object or this event or this word has taken away our sense of okayness. And people would rather fight and die than live not being okay. This is where drug abuse and all this other stuff comes in and violence. Because you, what you said or did, or what I'm afraid you might say or do, has threatened my essential okayness. There's a powerless person. I don't care what their position is or how, how rich they are or how poor. If you're not in charge of your state of well-being, you're a victim and you blame others and you try to get it back. Now, this might sound a little harsh, but I can be pretty direct about this. And here's something else that's interesting. If someone heard this and they're offended by what I said, they've just proved my point. Yeah. I think that it, this really goes, I say that, you know, we can never take ourselves out of relationship because we're always in relationship to something. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Right? We live in a dualistic society, in a dualistic world. That's how our brain works. Oh, yeah. It's dualistic. So there's this and that. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, there's an either or that can be going on. So one of the things is that we have a tendency, um, it, let me back this up. If, if, for instance, I believe that something external to me is the cause of why I feel something, like you're making me angry, then the one that I would try to be controlling then would be not myself, but you. So that's what leads yeah. to violence, because if I can't control you, I need to kill you. Sure. Yeah. Or injure you or manipulate you or, you know, somehow or other there's, so there's this power struggle that's going on within that relationship. So we've evolved a, a different way of thinking about life that is more cooperative in the sense that instead of having an expectation of others that, you know, or life that it doesn't have of itself. So I always say that at the heart of every relationship problem is that one or the other parties has an expectation of the other that they don't yet have of themselves. Yeah, I you know? love that. <laughs> and I also say that, you know, life has no expectation to give me everything that I want. It just doesn't have that, right? So it's not that life is unfair. It's just that life has no expectation to serve my every desire. It, it's, it's illogical and it's um, immature, actually. Um, however, if I hold to that, I'm going to victimize myself day after day after day. However, if we move to this idea of moving into a cooperative stance in life, then we come up with this idea of yes and. Like so, that. yeah. So I may, instead of yes, but, yes, but, <laughs> it becomes yes and. And I look at what is it that I want to experience in my life and what's my expectation of myself and myself alone to create that for myself. So I start to make choices from that position. What choice can I make? What meaning can I give this that brings me closer to or further away from what it is that I say that I want to experience? Because then it's all internal now. I have an internal locus of control. Yeah, I like that internal locus of control. So exactly what Jim said, and some of some people listening right now, if they you know have a f dramatic feeling, they could even disagree and be offended by the very thing that he said. So can we talk about bullying for just a couple of minutes? Sure. I feel like uh, you know from going on what you're saying, bullying is a result of self victimization yes. and you know lack of 
lack of control. Do you notice that uh, that starts around, just in your own experience, do you notice that that starts around a certain age with kids? Or is that hard to say? Um, it's not hard to say. You can notice it at all ages, but it's always the bully is trying to be okay because they feel out of control. And so they're trying to control their environment, which includes others. Whether it's a little kid stealing a toy from someone else and then getting over, hit over the head with a truck for it, it's still, <laughs> I'm trying to be okay, and this truck is my okay. This toy is my okayness. When it goes into, say, in the schools, the middle schools and the high schools, we see it running rampant. Yeah, no kidding. Here you have an adolescent brain that, again, on the list of needs is acceptance. It's trying to find its tribe its identity, it wants connection, it wants certainty, security, control, it wants all of those things. That's all part of being essentially okay. The danger there is they don't know that. And so they're very much influenced by the people who they want to be accepted by. The cool kids, the myth of the cool kids. <laughs> the myth, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because if they are accepted, then of course that means, there's the fiction, they like me and that means I'm okay. I'm good enough. I'm good enough, but that's rubbish. Rubbish. <laughs> rubbish. Right. If they don't like me, that means there's the fiction. There's something wrong with me. I'm not lovable, acceptable. I'm not good enough. And so the control, the struggle, the bullying is an attempt. It's the manifestation of that belief driven by the need to be okay. So go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry. So um, if if we take this idea of cooperative engagement and we see the if we put a common desire, a common uh, want or choice in the middle of a circle, for instance, and I say, I'm on one end of the circle and you're on the other, and I say, you want what I want. So if we could begin with kids by saying, let's just imagine it's the first day of school and you have all these kids in an assembly and say, who here wants to feel accepted this year? Stand up. <laughs> right, you'd, you'd have them all, you'd have them all stand <laughs> up. to their feet. Right, and then if you said, okay, I want you to write down 10, th you know, like 10 things that you're gonna do this year to create an environment of acceptance for yourself and for others. Because that's an ex expectation of what you expect yourself to do, right? So you're not looking for acceptance from the outside world anymore. You're saying, you know, I'm already acceptable. And that's the other part of this. The world's deadliest belief is there's there's so many spin-offs of that, not the, not the least of which is what makes me good enough or important is what you think of me. Yeah, exactly. Right. Instead of, no, you know, who I am has nothing to do with what other people think. So it's like uh, I give my clients this example of um, to break this down, especially with kids. I said, imagine I have two, two ice cream cones. One's your favorite and one's maybe not so <laughs> hot, right? So if I offered you an ice cream cone, which one would you pick? Well, probably the one that is your preference. But then if I said, okay, so this ice cream cone that you didn't choose over here is there anything wrong with it? Flawed with it? Well, no. Do you think that someplace in the world some, that's somebody else's favorite? Right? Yeah. Because intrinsically it is what it is. So somebody's preference has nothing to do with you. So when somebody tells you an opinion or their preference, it really they're revealing something about themselves. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. And kids get this very quickly. It's really quite remarkable that kids get it quicker than adults because I think the cement isn't quite so dry. But um, the, and also to be able to give kill, kids a skill set in order to handle the kind of things that they might encounter when they're met with that kind of energy. So for instance, where'd you get your shoes? You know, and you yeah. know it's a baiting question. Of course. So we teach children to ask a simple question. I'm curious, why do you ask? Because yeah. it's a mirror question saying, what is your intention in asking me that? Yeah, right. a mirror question. And see, this is the work I do with adults because no one ever did that with them as children. So for a kid to go equipped with this into school at such a young age, that's so awesome. Can yeah. you imagine going in already knowing you're okay into an environment that supports that? Well, you know, I hear so many parents say, oh, well, you know, it's just a rite of passage. They got to go through this and they got to go through that. That's bullshit. Oh, you want your kid to go through this? Why? Why would you? You didn't feel good doing it. Either did your mother, your father, your brother, whoever. So what? Adults are too fearful, too lazy, too, too what, you they know? They don't know. They don't know. And they don't know. And b unfortunately, the school system creates um, more of a problem than a solution about it because they begin to try to protect the victim <clears throat> and reinforce the victimhood. And it angers the bully. Yeah. And now the and now the bully is now the bully feels victimized by being set upon because now the adults are the bully to the child. So if there's a different approach, which is what I'm Jim and I have coined cooperative engagement, where you can help children to identify what is it that we all want to experience and what are you willing to do in order to create that experience for yourself first. And of course, you're creating an environment for other people. And you know, how proud would you be for having done that? So now that's an intrinsic reason to show up and not uh, meeting uh, an expectation of society or someone else. You're not trying to meet somebody else's expectation. You're trying to meet your own. So you ask kids, what are you willing to do? Oh, absolutely. And do they find that bewildering at first? And do you continue to lead them? Or are some of them just? Oh, snap of a finger most of them really get it from the standpoint that um they realize that what somebody says to me or about me doesn't mean anything about me it means something about them that very like what does your preference have to do with my preference is almost saying i don't like your shoes and say oh so what you're saying is that if you were me you wouldn't have bought these shoes and they go no i think they're hideous and say okay so what's your preference got to do with mine yeah you my know. daughter and I are at the point where we can kind of laugh at stuff like that. Yeah. Sometimes it gets thrown back in my face where I think, oh, damn, I shouldn't have taught her that concept. So really oh, hard. yeah. Oh, yeah. They can and will use it against you. <laughs> but at least I can Future laugh Future lawyers of America. I know, right? <laughs> no, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. So what you're saying is that um, you're going to clone yourself and you're going to go into the beginning of the school year this year, <laughs> up on everybody's stage, basically? Well, actually, we tried to present this uh, locally here in Rochester to, to a school system. And as much as uh, we were met with an initial enthusiasm by the principal, the, the social workers at the school panned it ah. because it's not part of the philosophy. You know, it's not what they teach. They teach tolerance. But what would you rather be, tolerated or accepted? Right. Mm -hmm. 
Tolerance always means I'm holding judgments against you. I just I hear the word and yeah. it bleh, gives me a <laughs> feeling. Or, okay. No, yeah. in the wrong language doesn't give me, but that's my intuitive sense toward that word tolerance. I just... One of the further problems, <laughs> a very pervasive problem throughout the world that um, grows out of this belief is the problem of judgments. So simply stated, a, a judgment is a label um, of right or wrong, good or bad. But if one looks closely at a judgment, it's a meaning that you project onto someone or something else, and the meaning is fictitious. I haven't found a judgment that's useful. All right, wrong, good, bad. And this goes into more of, of a bigger, I'm not going to get into the concept of good, of good or evil, but the right, wrong, good or bad um, label um, perpetuates the problem of victimization. Because if there's a person or a group of people, let's say that green and red Martians landed, um, I might like the green ones, but I've heard bad things about the red <laughs> ones. And so if I go near them or they come near me, I lose my sense of well-being because of my judgment. And a judgment can be based on real or imagined experience. Something that happened to me and the meaning I give it or something I heard from someone else, and I accept their meaning about this person or this object. So you see, all of it is made up. But as Lucci mentioned earlier, a, a good tool to use is discernment, where you weigh uh, your desired outcome against information that you have, factual or reasonably um, um, uh, possible and decide what course of action is best for you under these circumstances to attaining your higher outcome. So discernment's a tool. Judgment has become, um, I don't know. Well, I think it's at the core of um, a parenting style that's a controlled parenting style in the sense that, you know, we may say what you did was bad, but the child, it's a hop, skip, and yeah, a jump yeah. to what I, the, if I, what I did was bad, I'm bad. Um, versus if we use a word like, okay, so I bet you didn't expect that to happen, but now that you know that it happens, do you think it was useful what you did? Yeah. Notice the difference in saying, was that useful? I mean, I feel relaxed even hearing you say it now. Right. So language is a performative in the sense of how it helps our brain to uh, process an experience, right? So when we bring that kind of discernment, as Jim said, to a situation and say, would it be more useful for me to do X or do Y? Last night I was talking about um, bystander bias with, you know, my daughter mm. and I think what you're saying now, this discernment is, is huge because, I don't know, it seems to be kind of like the ingredient for just navigating anything, whether you're a kid, a teacher, uh, a police officer, you know, whoever. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, I wanted to ask you guys, oh, what's the secret sauce for spontaneous evolution? And really, you know, my question is, here, here we are you know, talking, we've got this great idea. We want to help the world, right? But how are we going to insert ourselves into people's lives in such a way to share this information with them? What's the, what's the process? How do we get the word 
out there. You um, know, you went into the schools, which I think is hugely brave because I know how the public schools <laughs> respond to uh, something outside their you know um, framework. Well, I think that. You know, in the past, when I was younger, um, you know, there was this notion that I was going to be on the vanguard of something, you know, the, you know, <laughs> the movement. And um, now I think that there's sort of this this quiet grassroots infiltration where you're I have a lot of young people in my practice and I know that it's organic so that or if I'm working with a parent that now that is working on their own belief system, that they become better parents for knowing what they know. And so I think that the, the little interactions that we have among each other can have far more reaching impact at times than some of the social things that we might do because unfortunately, we, some of the things that we might present might come off as like, okay, a belief. You know, you're just presenting a new cosmology and it's getting pushed back. Whereas when somebody has transformed themselves, they're far more likely to pass it on in an organic way. And over time, I think it makes a huge difference. So little things, it's the yeah. flap of the butterfly. Oh yeah, I get that 20 years later. <laughs> I have uh, changed the idea. When I was younger, I had this burning desire, this driving sense of purpose to save the world. Oh, I know that feeling. I know, understand. <laughs> I now understand the world doesn't need saving. The world is really a-okay. We say the world is innocent. <laughs> a belief structure, a person's belief structure will cause them to see the world according to their beliefs, as you know. But the world stripped of your meaning is perfect, beyond description. There aren't words to say how amazing creation is. We come and we gloss that over or paint over this beautiful perfection with our own ideas of the way it should be. The constant editing of it. Yeah. Yes. So going back to uh, your spontaneous, first of all, let, let me get your definition of that just so that, that I'm on the same page with you. Because again, we speak the same language, but the meanings are made up. We speak English, but we're not really speaking the same meanings unless... And here's a, a lesson for, don't assume in a conversation that you understand what someone says, because we, the interpretation, the meaning that you get is really, uh, the feedback that you get is really the meaning of the conversation, not what you intended. So what do you mean by spontaneous evolution? Because some people think it's a sunspot that happens and then there's genetic mutations and, you know. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my interpretation of spontaneous evolution, first, uh, I get that concept from Dr. Bruce Lipton. Mm -hmm. He's a neurobiologist. I know the two of you are familiar with him in his work. And being in epigenetics, we talk about all of these um, you know, environmental influences. So... I think of spontaneous evolution, and I'm just asking the question about, um, you know, how do we get the word out there? We talk about it being organic. You know, how many lifetimes over will it take, if you will, to make it go from organic to this is just the way that we live. This is just how we are. You know, will there be a time when we're not talking about when the word suffering is not in the lexicon? Uh, maybe there won't be negative connotations could there be a world where it isn't dualistic i think of things like that 
could we spontaneously, and I say spontaneous, spontaneous is relative too, right? Mm-hmm. So could there be, um, you know, a way to get out of our suffering? Yeah, one person at a time. One of the things that I discovered when I was waiting to be happy um, for the world, for I was waiting for world peace to happen before I could be at peace. It doesn't work that way. To be futuristic enough to say, will the human race ever totally be awakened and live in a non-dual world? I, I don't know. Probably not. But I don't know. The thing is that there's a plan unfolding that people don't seem to be aware of or they ignore completely that there's nothing really to worry about. But Lucia and I discovered in the early years of coaching, I'll, I'll speak for myself, but I know it's true for her too. Someone would come in with their list of problems. <laughs> I want more of this and I want less of that. I want uh, less suffering and I want more happiness. And we go through the process. But over the years, we realized that there's really one level responsible for all of the other problems, and it's the identity level. And the beliefs and values that we all have inform who it is we think we are, our idea of ourselves. That is where the only problems lie. And so what Lucci and I do is we work at the identity level. We do that through values and beliefs as well, because again, what you get back from your environment kind of reinforces who it is you think you are, whether for good or for bad, real or imagined. And um, part of that is helping someone understand their essential self before the story began. We take them, and I won't get too deeply into this, but we take them all the way back to... You can get as deep as you want. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> can I... I am. Anything after I am is fiction. Yeah, yeah. It's the story. However, we <laughs> believe that the story is us because it's our experience. It gets into our neural net as beliefs and reinforces the identity. That's where all the personal suffering comes from. Yes. Yeah, and to add to that, it's that because we have this, it's, it's a constructed sense of self. So one way of checking this out is if I asked, if you were standing in the doorway of a nursery room and there were 50 infants there and they were not a minute old, can you point to the ones that aren't good enough, aren't capable What makes them good enough or important is what other people think of them. Aren't smart. All of these things, right? Yeah, that's a powerful question. Yeah, so people will tell me absolutely no. I'll say, well, hello, you're one of them. Yeah. Right? That's you without the story of what came after, which is all the meanings that were made up through your experiences. So, you know, we become identified with things that we are not, and we get very stuck at that point. This is the stuck at go kind of stuff, yeah. right? Which yeah. is, I think, anytime we use the words I am, think about it as like I equals, whatever follows it. You know, so I am my feelings. I am anxious. I am my behaviors. I'm a control freak. I am a product of my experience, right? 
So in other words, I am the way that I am because of, it's my big because, my history is the reason I am. But in a sense, it's our interpretation of our history. It's the meanings we've made up, right? Yeah. Or I am my thinking, meaning I am my preferences. I'm a vegetarian, my judgments, I'm a liberal, I'm a Republican, I'm, uh, you know, yeah. whatever else there is. Or I am meaning a belief, I am not good enough, you know? So we assign a meaning to ourselves. So that whenever we use these words, I am, those are very powerful words, but they become almost glued to concepts that we have about, right? So this presence in person. And one of the things that Jim and I are really um, passionate about helping people to discover in themselves is that original sense of themselves that needs nothing to be happy. Nothing to be happy. I love that. Yeah. Finding your piece in the puzzle. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what that is right That's there. exactly what that is. And it's going back a little bit to what you said, will there ever be world peace, non-duality? Um, life is self-contained and self-evolving. This is my view. I'm not trying to give someone a belief. This is actually my experience. I know this to be true, but I leave that to someone else to discover, to recognize. The very fact that there is duality, that there is conflict, is one of the self-evolving mechanisms built into life that allow us to um, go beyond, to, to surpass, to overcome the conflicts that appear to be caused by the outside world, by other people. And this is what I mean by understanding that the world doesn't have to be at peace for you to have peace in your world. Seven and a half billion different worlds out there, you can have the one thing that you want most, that essential okayness in such a way that no matter what else happens in the world, you can hold on to that. Even if the rest of the world seems insane, which by the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> so we get to that level of identity where I'll just say this is in passing the model that Lucia and I have built over the years that includes the world's deadliest belief is a mental model. It's designed to be a roadmap for the brain, for the mind, so that it has a different direction to go in. Because remember, we can't really, as much as we like to think so, the power of choice and all yeah, that, yeah. we are stuck within our neurology. And the only thing that can help us get out of that is new information. So giving the mind a roadmap takes it to the point to I guess the outer boundaries of the intellect in such a way that if it can happen It's we we're we are more invested in the idea of spontaneous awakening to the true self on an individual basis because there is only one consciousness. There's only one consciousness that we all share in the sense. And um, consciousness is consciousness. You know, you can't own it. I like to just, you know, think it's kind of silly and funny that we're even having this conversation to begin with. You know, we're whatever ages we've assigned ourselves mm -hmm. and we've gotten to this point. You know, what if we what if we didn't? Mm -hmm. It's life talking <laughs> to life about life. That's all there right. is. It's just a monologue. And the one thing uh, I was 
kind of leading uh, to is that the world's deadliest belief, the way we present it, is a mental model, a roadmap for the mind. And the psychological suffering in the world is due, at least in large part, if not completely, to this belief that our sense of being okay depends on what's going on around us, what we have, what we don't have, what people say and do. Which and is beyond our control. Which is beyond our control. Uh, this is where the sense of hopelessness and helplessness and anger and violence come because we can't control, and so we try harder and harder and, and resort to very primitive ways of, of attempting to do that, yeah, including sure. suicide. Mm -hmm. When we our identity becomes, I am the problem, therefore I will never be okay, there's one thing about being essentially okay. People would rather die than not be essentially okay if they thought they could never have it. But for the world's deadliest belief to exist, there's one other higher level belief that must exist first, and that is the belief that we're separate. I would definitely agree with that. <laughs> if we all really could uh, come from that position, um, I have to say that in working with people for years and years now, and they most often, not always, but most often people reach a particular place within the process work itself where they come to recognize that. And Jim has even worked with people that were um, atheists who came to recognize, you know, the greater truth of that, that we are more, we are always more than who we think we are. And um, whatever I say about myself is not myself. It's a concept. There's simply a constructed sense of self. But there is the, um, the firstborn sense of awareness that we exist. So, you know, just as an exercise, maybe to the listening audience. Yeah, yeah. You know, is it, if you just take a moment and just, you know, just leave aside for a moment any idea of the past. Because the past is done and over with. You can't bring a moment back. It's the graveyard. You know, our mind yes. wants to go there. Thank you for yes. saying that. Okay. <laughs> so if you just drop that and you leave out the future because the future isn't here yet. And anything mm -hmm. you say about it is a lie. I always tell Made people, up. Yeah. yeah, I always tell people, you know, anything you say about the future is a lie, be a better liar. But for now, <laughs> we're just going to let it go. I love it. Right. And just even now, just, just. Leave every thought you have about yourself because it's all constructed and just recognize, like, just say I exist. It is the one truth. I, ex I exist. So you are here and just simply be here. So if you were just compare this moment, like I'm breathing in and I'm breathing out. And in this moment, and I, I were to ask you, do you have any problems here? No. Anything to fix? No. <laughs> Can it be depressed? Anxious? No. See, so we just in recognizing that, you know, we can come to this place and, and begin to have a greater uh, sense of the seat of consciousness with where we began. Then we realize, oh, I'm the author of my life. I just don't remember having authored it. <laughs> Right. But if I did author it, I get to rewrite it. But if things are happening to me, 
right? If the meanings that are in life were inherent in the things that were happening, we'd be pretty, you know, to use the word screwed. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Instead of, um, you know, when we recognize when we're having a reaction to something, if we could stop and ask ourselves, huh, like we're anthropologists from Mars looking at ourselves and just saying, you know, huh, that's an interesting, not to beat ourselves up, just yeah, go, well, yeah. yeah. And just to say, ah, what meaning am I giving this that I'm causing this feeling to occur inside of me? It is it the only possible meaning that I could be giving it? What's a more useful meaning? Because no one meaning is more true than another, but it may well be more useful, right? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, the empowering questions. Notice that um, in the you make me model, where other people are making me feel bad or good. I mean, it works both ways. We don't fight with good so much. Um, <laughs> um, if you are making me feel bad, then you're in the victim position and you have to try and control. As Lucia said, when you say, what meaning am I giving this? The brain immediately gets switched to the position of power. I'm not the effect, I'm the cause. What other meaning opens up a world of possibilities? What other meaning could there be? And then the solution question, because people get stuck in the box, is a magic question that Lucia came up with years ago. Um, Can I... Can I take this one yeah, just sure. really quickly? Yeah. Um, the, the, what's the one almost common thing when people face a problem? What's the first question that they bring to the problem is why? I call that a oh, shovel yeah. question. I know. Why oh, am I having a problem? Why, 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 right? But if I ask why problem, I'm just going to get information about the problem. The problem. Which only leads us to this place of, of cause and blame. And it's so, I say, it's all like getting in a box, right? Now you're in that box and you're rummaging around, but, you know, there's, you know, where's the solution? The solution is not in the box, but we're caught in the box of problem in a sense. But if I, if you had a physical box and we put it on the floor and it represented every problem in your life, you'd notice that it's finite, right? But what's bigger, the box or the not box? Yeah. The not, box. the not box. So how do we get to the not box? So ask a different question. So the question is, it's this magic turnaround question is, what is missing that if I had it right now, I couldn't possibly have a problem? And notice what happens to your brain. Just goes out of the box. A magic carpet to space? Yeah. Is that the answer? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. Okay, so... Everybody always writes in after podcasts and they want to know how to access, you know, my awesome guests. So how do you guys want to interact with our guests? How do you want people to get in touch with you? Oh, so you're here in New York. I will. I think that uh, Jim and I both love to hear from people, you know, um, I love hearing people calling me or, or texting me so they can reach out um, and I can give you my cell phone number. Jim can give you his um, I love that direct. I'm I'm not much of a texter going back and forth. I love just getting on the phone and answering people's questions. I'm happy to take some time because what we do is very unique and different with people, and um, it's very exciting. You know. I love that you didn't say 
go look at my Instagram handle and read about this or that? Uh, no, I'm a people to person, people to people person. Um, you know, you might say it's generational, but I just, I love the inter interacting. I love, I love the inter that about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to, that we should tell people? Um, no, the topic is so big, we can talk for a lifetime. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, we could sit here, get out some wine, then have lunch, then do this and oh, that. Oh, yeah. I know. We could just keep and talking. Maybe, maybe we'll stop talking and have lunch and keep talking. <laughs> I would say, say perhaps suggest to um, people that have listened to this to don't take our word for this. Try it. Yeah, try it. Ask some of the questions that we have presented and, and see what happens. Look at yourself in a new way. Start to question every belief that isn't giving you a useful outcome from the basis of knowing you made it up. And I don't care if everybody else in the world believes it, everybody else. If it can't be proven in a lab, scientifically, it is made up. That's a pretty big concept. And I would just say also, um, going back, just the one thing that just a clarifying point when you were talking about childhood traumas and whatever, I think that, you know, we can go through, I, I myself have gone through traumatic events as, yeah. as a child. Um, however, there's, if you make the distinction between consequence and meaning, that can be very helpful because the brain wants to say, well, this really does mean that because I went through this. So, for instance, the consequence of being um, spanked as a child is uncomfortable, but it doesn't mean that I'm not good enough. And that's a unique distinction. And so it helps to really think about that. Yes. Um, you know, if you're reviewing, if you're doing your own life review. That's awesome. And if someone thinks you're a jerk, it's okay to reflect. If I am called a jerk by enough people, I'll wonder why. I'll curiously ask, what is it about me that caused you to label me with the judgment of being a jerk? It's okay for me to look at my behaviors and say, hmm, are these behaviors useful? Yeah, of course, right? You know, right. Or is there something I can change? That's using discernment. Mm -hmm. I don't have to say, wow, really, I'm a jerk. Well, it's in a way, <laughs> one of the challenges, one of the challenges that I'll hear from clients sometimes is that when we present our cooperative engagement model is, well, does this mean that I'm not responsible to my partner? And I'll say, let's clear this up. You are responsible for what you create in life, but you're not responsible for somebody else's feelings. And there's a huge difference in that. So oh, if yeah. you say that you want to create a healthy relationship, then you're responsible for creating a healthy relationship and reflecting on your own behavior and whether or not you're actually creating it. So if your partner is giving you feedback that, you know, that didn't really sit well with me. I'm not saying you did it to me. However, this is how I'm processing it. That's a, a different approach than saying you're making me feel this way. Yeah. I think it's interesting how humans repeat the same patterns. First, it's a whisper, yeah. then it's a little louder, and then it's, you know, a five alarm fire. So knowing that we do that, this will be a great conversation for people to go to, yeah. to kind of dissect the those patterns. <laughs> yes. And one of, one of the things that she mentioned earlier with the cooperative engagement model is that in any relationship, this is personal, business, political, it can be any relationship yeah, yeah. at all. 
Once you set your expectations of yourself and declare them, the other person then has the right to expect that of you. And it also brings in the concept of self-accountability. I stated this is what I was going to do to create what it is that we want. If I have deviated from that, it's time for me to be self accountable and say, okay, what's going on here? Did I change my mind? I mean, you look at it in those ways, but notice there's no attack, no blame. I think that's the important distinction, you know, personal responsibility, personal accountability, but then not beating yourself up yeah. if, you know, yeah. you right. deviate for some reason. Right. Or even if your partner deviates, I mean, you can meet them with a sense of curiosity is like, you know, rather than saying you did this to me, say, well, you know, I know that this is an expectation that you have of yourself, so I'm just curious, you know, what's going on for you? You know, what's happening, you know? Yeah, I really like that, a sense of curiosity. That just sounds so, um, I don't know, reassuring, calm. Yeah. Well, help me understand. Comforting. Help me understand. Help me understand. Help me understand. Yeah. Every now and then a client will say when we're talking about relationships, well, Jim, are you trying to say that I'm not supposed to care about anybody? <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that at all. But imagine the difference. Just imagine the scenario, because most relationships are like this. You needing your partner and expecting your partner to make you okay. Sure. Or being okay already, in control of your state of being, your state of well-being, and bringing that into a relationship. Boy, have I pissed off a lot of people by bringing that into yeah. relationships. Knowing that <laughs> you don't need them to be okay, but the two of you together can now build something, you know, synergistic that has yeah. the when you get there it's such a cool feeling yeah because yeah. you notice it's greater than the sum of the parts yeah, yeah greater right. than the sum of the parts so yeah we call those the, the, the vampire relationships <laughs> yeah. so, you know, i know that terminology sucking sure. each other's life force to be okay and you know there's only two things that can happen <laughs> when you hang out with vampires do you know what they are <laughs> besides losing a lot of blood <laughs> you either die or become one or you become or become one become a vampire yeah, I watched my fair share of True Blood, so yeah. that's pretty much what uh, happens episode yeah. after episode. <laughs> oh, well, it's gosh, what happens in it. the human condition, too, the relationships yeah. that are out there. Um, and it, it'll be very easy now to, to um, find someone who is infected with the world's deadliest belief by the language. Mm -hmm. You make me, I feel offended. Uh, a lot of things spring out of this, including political correctness and wars and as if there was crime, such a thing as if there was trying to legislate what people think so you can't offend someone and the one of the reasons we work at the identity level is because people individually and by groups have identified themselves as who they are based on such minute criteria that is meaningless so whether imagine... it's race or gender preference or political uh, leanings or religion it's really yeah, it's causing really? it, it's causing yeah. such a upheaval um, in Fear, a sense. Fear, hatred, anger. Uh, people walk around on eggshells, you know, yeah. all the time. You don't know what to say and yeah, who like to I say said, it they're to. They're either pissed or they're offended or they're ready to be offended. You may yeah. be af af <laughs> afraid of me because how you think I can affect your state of well-being for real or for imagined. This is where fear comes from. So now it's the control of language and the control of thought. It's the thought police. But my question yeah. is, if you knew that I was you, would you be afraid of me? 
Absolutely not. <laughs> so now we've if really knew, moved. Maybe actually. <laughs> we were essentially the same. I am you looking through a different set of neurological impressions, different filters. But the life force that connects everything. I mean, that's so empowering and exciting. And awesome. That's the peace on earth. And people don't have to know that about me for me to know that about them yes, and not fear yes. them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really basic and not esoteric mm -hmm. at all to think of it like Lucia that. Lucia and I are, we can, through experience now, because we have lived with these principles and practiced them, I'll speak for myself. I am unoffendable. As me am, too. As am I. It doesn't matter what, yeah. and I'm not talking again, listeners, about a, phys <laughs> a physical attack is a crime. It should be dealt with as such. You defend yeah. yourself or you run. I'm talking about the words that people tend to use as weapons. Mm -hmm. It's a word. Absolutely invulnerable because a word has no meaning that's inherently real. It's made up. And I, you know, getting back to the idea, you know, a little bit retouching on this idea of bullying, you know, to be able to teach children that words really have no inherent meaning however the speaker of those words it reveals something about them yeah so sure. if somebody were to call you know a child a bad name you know and that child were able to turn it around by saying you know your words are meaningless about me they mean nothing about me or for me but they mean something about you for having said it and just walk away that do we have time awesome. to tell one more little bully story that we teach kids? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, because meanings are, are all made up. One of the things we say is we teach kids to take the mean out of the meanings that bullies give yes, words to that. use as weapons. What a cool reframe. It instantly makes <laughs> sense. And the story is like this. If a bully came up to you and put a gun to your head and you knew the bully's intention was to shoot you, would you be afraid? Would probably, you? Probably. probably right like, because probably. you know <laughs> survival instinct yeah. but what if you knew for sure that there were no bullets in that gun would you still be afraid no not really if you knew for certain now assuming you wanted to live and you knew for certain there was no bullets in that bully's gun would you say hey wait a minute your gun is empty and hand them the bullets no but that's exactly <laughs> what you do when you give meaning to the words they shoot at you. It's an empty gun. Giving, giving over your power. Unless you mm -hmm. give it the meaning to, unless you give it the power to offend or to hurt you. See, it's all under your own control. Your sense of well-being is all under one's own control. I'm not saying it's just easy. I'm not saying I get Oh, that. it's unpleasant to be spoken to that. that way. That's the sure. idea. That's the difference of being say, being able to say, yeah. Of course, it's unpleasant. Nobody likes to listen to that. Nobody likes to be around people that are ugly toward yeah, them. Or feel threatened. I mean, but it yeah. doesn't mean anything about you. And that's True. the identity level that we try in, in an early stage, too. Those principles of identity, those ideas about who you really are, so that you don't get pulled into the world's idea of who you are. Yeah, the world's are. idea. So I know that privacy is such a huge thing, but it could be really cool if you guys recorded videos of your sessions with kids you weren't showing you know kids faces if there was consent 
and parents could see the process and kids could see the process. Maybe you already do that, but I don't know if you do so far. No, I, I tend to think that um, videographing kind of opens up a whole world of issues, um, yeah, you know, just even legally. And, um, and I kind of see the relationship that I have with my clients, whether old or young, as being sacrosanct yeah, yeah that you know th that it's uh what's in the vault stays in the vault yeah and doesn't go any further than and the four walls and they become self-conscious when there's a camera on too and, and i do too yeah. Yeah. i mean as far as For like sure. you know and i i believe in, that the relationships and conversations and jim and i don't have a we have a model but we don't have a process it's not a step-by-step -step cookie cutter process oh yeah it's totally you know, personalized so, yeah, yeah so so that. um you know in order to to have that you, you know there's a lot of vulnerability coming from us as well so we share our personal you know uh challenges with our clients at different times and things that have worked for us and so it's it's very intimate so if who it is you think you are isn't working for you change who it is you think you are love it <laughs> you guys rock thank you so much well, thank for you being for... with me everyone's gonna be so pumped when they listen to this well i hope so i hope that that <laughs> people you you know that the listening audience has at least maybe one thing to take away but if i would say one thing um, that I'd like to share, if they, you could take one thing away, um, my mantra in life is nothing means anything until I say it means it. Yeah. And thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much for having great. us. Love As you guys. Love you too. <laughs> Let's go have and a big that means, And that means you're wonderful. <laughs>